This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. Welcome to the Rerooted Podcast with Francesca Maxime, trauma-sensitive mindfulness meditation teacher and poet. Together, we'll take a closer look at approaches to transforming trauma with insights from psychology, neuroscience, spirituality, social justice, and the creative arts. Join Francesca and her guests for an exploration of our shared connection and how we can cultivate greater compassion for ourselves and for others. If you'd like to support Francesca and the Rerooted Podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Francesca. Hey everyone, I'm Francesca Maxime and welcome to this edition of the Rerooted Podcast here on Ram Dass's Be Here Now Network. At the time of this taping, it is August 11th, 2021, and here in the U.S. and specifically on uh, Uncatog territory here in uh, Long Island, New York, um, there, there really has been a resurgence of the variants of the um, uh, COVID uh, situation, and so we are we are sort of we're sort of maybe perhaps thinking that we were going to have a little bit more of a carefree, more liberatory kind of uh, environment come fall and, and move back into uh, sort of working back in our office buildings. And yet, um, this little mutation, this changing thing, this changeling, um, continues to affect us. And I feel as though it is as appropriate as ever to continue to go back to our Buddhist principles and our frameworks and our mindfulness practices to kind of help support us and make sense um, of some of uh, the, 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 the things that we are, which is change, and, um, and how we can sort of ride the waves, as it's been said, uh, as skillfully as, as possible. And to help us do that today, we have a lovely guest, uh, Lama Justin von Bujas, an American Buddhist, Buddhist teacher and chaplain. He was ordained as a repa in the Karma Kamsa tradition of the Tibetan Buddhism, of Tibetan Buddhism, excuse me, by his eminence. Um, boy, you're going to have to help me with this yeah. one. Goshir Gyaltsab Rinpoche? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in 2001 and was given the name, is this Repa Dorje Ojer? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm doing all right. Um, uh, Justin is passionate about the preservation of the tantric Buddhist tradition in a way that meets the needs of and simultaneously challenges the modern Western way of life. He is co-founder and a guiding teacher for Bhumi's Farsa. Bhumi's Farsa, um, is that right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. An experimental tantric Buddhist sangha founded with Lama Rod Owens, which is kind of how I think I first heard of you because I had been studying a little bit with Lama Rod. From 2012 to 17, Justin served as the co-founder, resident lama, and executive director of New York Surf Sioux Goshir Dharma Center, and he is presently the first dedicated staff chaplain 
for the New York City Department of Correction. So he works on Rikers Island. Um, and he's also the author of this beautiful book, which we're going to talk about today, Modern Tantric Buddhism, Embodiment and Authenticity in Dharma Practice. Welcome, Dustin. It's so good to see you. Yeah, thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. It's, um, you know, you're, you're one of those people I've, I've wanted to talk to for a while because I think you blend what I've been trying to do that I didn't find a lot of when I was starting. And based on your positionality and social location, which I will let you explain for yourself or, or share if you'd like to share your location, your social location, also your territory and the land you're on. Um, you know, I don't see a lot of people who, at least on first glance, look like you talking about the things that you try to talk about and marrying the kind of Buddhist principles that you do with the way in which we can move into social action. But I'll let you introduce yourself in that way, if you don't mind. Yeah, no problem. Uh, so, yeah, um, you know, my name is Justin Bomboidas. I uh, live in South Brooklyn, which is um, an ape uh, territory. Uh, and, you know, I self-identify as uh, straight white now um and and uh you know i think even though that might be how i identify that's not really how i think of myself so much um if i had to think of myself as anything it would be some kind of like medieval indian <laughs> tantrika uh trapped in in this time um <clears throat> and so the book and a lot of the work that i do it is um you know rooted in this intersection of Tantric Buddhist practice and chaplaincy, and then uh, I think also a lot of, kind of natural um, critique, which I think is a healthy thing for practitioners to uh, engage in in exploring how would it, how is it that I interact with the tradition that I am, am practicing? What does it mean for me as um, so? For example, somebody in in New York City. To practice a tradition that developed in anywhere between the second and um, eighth century uh, India, what does that mean? You know, obviously, it doesn't mean I need to dress, you know, in, in kind of um, you know Asian style clothes. It doesn't necessarily mean I need to change my name. It doesn't necessarily mean I need to change my interests or my passions. And uh, so, I think a lot of my work has been trying to embody and um, crystallize that, that ethos in the form that I happen to take in this, in this lifetime. And um, I think, you know, one of the things that I've encountered in my study and practice of Buddhism is that um, most of my practice and, and training has happened in Asia, in primarily in, in Sikkim, the Jiling area, and then, and then a few other places. Um, and I didn't really have a lot of exposure to uh, the Western Buddhist uh, tradition until I was kind of well steeped in, in the tradition. And in beginning to interact with and intersect with Western Buddhist traditions and, and, and how we find Dharma rising here, I began to see a lot of um, the ways that and social oppressions extend into the Buddhist communities, white supremacy, patriarchy, um, whiteness in general. Uh, and then um, it really kind of fostered a, a number of questions for me around what does it mean to become liberated but within the context of all of that. Um, 
And what we do find sometimes in some of our more traditional sanghas here in, in the West is a denial of that kind of thinking. You know, this kind of um, belief that looking at social location, looking at um, systems of oppression, um, interrogating ourselves in relationship to power uh, is more of a Western imposition onto um, you know, Dharma traditions. Not pure. Not pure, yeah. And, and I'll argue the opposite. I'll say that it's, you know, an inherent extension of the development of awareness. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, for me, as a cisgender white male, it's incumbent upon me in the development of the relationship to awareness practices to understand my impact as I move through space, right? To, to understand um, what seems to fall in my lap. You know, oh, I'm just blessed with these when it comes to X, Y, or Z, right? Or that's how it can look, but, but maybe it's actually a little bit more complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, you know, the beauty of my work with Amarad um, Owens uh, and Boomi Sparshan, and just as a, as a you know, very close uh, friend, is, you know, working together to confront the tradition itself in the way that it's arisen here. Um, which has been, I think you could say, uh, easily ensconced within, within a, a container of whiteness, right? And so what does it mean to confront power? What does it mean to confront um, assumptions about people? What does it mean to um, also kind of step into a larger Western indigeneity when it comes to Dharma practice? So when, when we uh, look at the way that Dharma spread from the Indian subcontinent up into that, um, you know, around 900, um, you know, 1000 AD, uh, you know, morphing, becoming Tibetanized, you know, taking on the richness of that culture. There was a lot of um, appropriation, you know, that happened you know, uh, by the Tibetans towards the Indian tradition. And then likewise, we find ourselves in a very similar place now where as Dharma spreads into, in this particular case, the U.S., how does it change? And, you know, in terms of uh, a sangha like Buddhist Parsha, which is very diverse and kind of aims, is, is aimed at um, the creation of a container that, that really holds diversity and nurtures diversity, how can everybody within that sangha intersect with Dharma practice in a way that allows them to, to empower themselves and allows them to, allows the Sangha itself to really demonstrate a specific hybridity of, you know, tantric practice and then whoever it is that we are and, mm-hmm. and together to become, uh, you know, an expression of liberation. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you for that. And, and, and I'll just also say my pronouns are, I used to say they were she, we, us, but they're really like she, our, ours, I guess, really, um, which I'm kind of picking up actually from um, someone who else you might know, um, Joseph Tamori Gibson, because he was sort of, you know, uh, adopting the we, and that's really more of where I'm at with everything, because if we're talking about interbeing and we're talking about interdependence or co-arising or any of these things that we talk about, um, what are we really talking about? <laughs> none of us are separate, none of us are static, and therefore we're all interconnected, even the ones who, as the great Sharon Salzberg will say, I may not like everyone, but I love everyone in that way. 
Um, and so, uh, yeah, not pushing anything away, not rejecting anything, making space for all of it or being the space that contains all of it, however you want to say it. Um, so what I hear you saying is, um, and I'm a straight multi-ethnic woman, uh, also I should just say for that. Uh, and I say straight kind of wincing cause I know that's not actually a term that a lot of people like. So I'd say heterosexual, cisgender. Um, so, okay. So Here's my thing. Now, we could go in a lot of directions with this conversation. Um, but again, not to, back to this sort of interbeing. Like, it's not like my mindfulness practice. I think it was either, maybe it was Lama Rod, maybe it was Reverend Angel Kyoto. I don't, I don't know, Williams. But like, don't hoard your spiritual practice. I think it was Lama Rod. You know, like, you're not sitting there to sort of accumulate your jhana states of, you know, epiphany and hold on to this piece of, mind. You're here to be able to be, I think, collectively um, flexible enough and strong enough to be able to withstand the challenges that are before us, whether they're ancestral challenges, current, present challenges, you know, perhaps anticipatory challenges as it is with the climate and things like that. And so maybe talk a little bit about how this piece of, um, embodied Buddhist practice, embodied tantric practice, and specifically tantric, uh, not Theravadin, not, you know, sort of insight, you know, other kinds of practices. Um, what does that look like in your sangha or in, in real life? And um, yeah, I don't know. You can start anywhere with that. Okay. Um, it's a lovely question. Um, so within the context of, of the tantric tradition, um, a, a really important element of the practice is a head-on facing or, or exploration and resting into everything that arises. And so all emotion, um, especially those things that are difficult to bear witness to, difficult to, to um, experience, perhaps you could say, within, um, within our being, death, uh, suffering, violence, um, things of this nature. And in the tantric tradition, this is one of the reasons why charnel ground imagery is, um, is really important. Um, the tantric it, tradition, you said imagery, is that right? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Visualization, you know, imagery. Uh, skulls, <laughs> you know, death. Um, and so the imagery, both in the, in the art and then in visualization, and then in a, in a number of practices where one... Um, uh, may visualize offering their body chopped up in, into pieces to um, things that scare us, right? To, to, you know, that might, in the form of these practices, might um, be wrathful deity spirits or, or, you know, local protector beings, but which also, um, to some degree, also represent our fear, our anxiety, all of the emotion that usually keeps us kind of recoiling, coming back to ourselves. Um, and so, you know, with respect to embodied practice, this leads me like a moth to a flame to places that are hard. So mm -hmm. prior to working for Department of Correction, I was a hospital, home hospice chaplain um, uh, in, in New York City. And um, at the time, with, um, people who were actively dying, providing support for their family members and loved ones. Um, before that, as I was training to be a chaplain, I, most of my um, training was on locked psych floors and 
and medical ICUs, these kind of really intense visceral places where in order for me to be present within my practice of Dharma, within my practice of chaplaincy and, and being a support for others, I had to be uh, kind of steeped in pain, suffering, loss, anxiety, uh, watching people die and finding wisdom in that, finding love in that, finding patience in that. And of course, in, in corrections, um, I think you could say the kind of overarching additional experience was violence, right? And typically within <laughs> like the, the average Buddhist kind of practitioner mind, there tends to be this kind of preferencing of peacefulness, of yeah. uh, creating a, a uh, nice, wholesome, uh, comfortable environment which sounds a lot like whiteness to me in that way. Totally, totally, absolutely. Yeah, and so, you know, my, my embodiment is really running into the burning building, you know, running into, and so that burning building could be me, you know, the burning building could be um, uh, spending time with people who are, uh, who have just been assaulted or people who are um, traumatized by an intense work environment, uh, traumatized perhaps by what's arising within them. Um, you know, obviously, the experience of death, loss, bereavement, grief, and, and things like that. Um, and what I find is that all of these things become, they can become very um, teachers. And um, in, in my experience, they have become actual, you know, gurus, or teachers, death in particular. Um, and then, of course, over the past five years that I've been in corrections violence uh, and um, which is a hard thing to connect to, um, mm. you know, that, that visceral quality of um, showing up for somebody who's, who's recovering from himself, you know, mm. uh, and, and then may have had that experience 10 times over the past year, and they're only three years into a 20-year career. And so, you know, kind of journeying with people in, uh, within their suffering. Yeah, yeah. I love I love that journeying with people within their suffering. Like it's it's that co, you know, in um I'm certified in focusing, which is essentially a, a tuning into the the felt sense in your, you know, sort of your your somatic, your embodied kind of, you know, responses and and um we talk about keeping it company, whatever that it is, the something company and how to create an accompaniment. And in mindfulness language, I think, you know, we talk about bearing witness or, 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 or sort of being the observer or being the knowing. And then there is the known and, and, you know, the, the, that whole conversation that's often had in these kind of communities around matter and, and, you know, energy and, and, and things like that and how it's, it's not two in those non-dual ways, right. That were, they were all, all of that but that there's this presence, consciousness, this awareness, this space that, you know, <clears throat> this accompaniment, you know, um, thing that, that, we're, that we're always in relationship to, to something. We don't exist outside of relationship and yet we're, we are unique. And leaning in toward the hard part, leaning in, they say what we resist persists and, you know, all those things. When we do lean in, I found as a therapist now, as well as a life coach and a somatic you know, practitioner, that, that when we lean in, in a way that has that friendly attitude or that fearless or courageous attitude, 
or you have your lineage behind you, your teachers behind you, your other practitioners that are also training as you did for many years um, behind you or with you, that, that there is a support there or resources we might use in a, in a somatic language um, to, to help us to do that and know that we feel like we can kind of make it, make it through that. And the more we do that, that we authentically are more embodied and more fearless. Like it's not a fake thing. You're not just being brave. You actually have the courage. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, it's more than the courage, right? It, it ends up being, it ends up leading to uh, authentic wisdom born of experience. And, right. and you know, stress the importance of that enough. That that is the thing that becomes this fuel that, that allows us to quote, quote, reinvest in our meditation or to kind of, you know, double down and go a little bit deeper because we're actually finding, um, so for example, you know, uh, in my experience at hospice, um, I like to describe it as, as, you know, it was a journey of me chasing death across New York City for three years, mm. just on death's coattails. And watching people die, watching people go through, um, I mean, sometimes amazing transformations at the end of life, and then sometimes, you know, uh, incredibly difficult experiences as if, you know, falling into, uh, you know, a deep, dark hole, that the sustained activity of being present provides us with the ground that allows us to develop authentic wisdom in being in relationship to one another, and then also within ourselves and our practice. And that wisdom is what leads us to an experience of certainty. Mm. And that certainty is the thing that, that keeps us going and allows everything to become incredibly profound. We can just kind of keep keep going, you know, keep mm-hmm. trying. Sometimes it feels like we're treading water and not going anywhere, and sometimes we're really going to these profound places. Mm-hmm. Um, if we don't show up, not a lot happens. Right, right. And sometimes the showing up is just treading water, steadying. It's not, you know, you're not swimming the English Channel. You're just sort of not drowning, you know. Or recognizing, like, you know, wow, I'm really... I'm really overwhelmed right now. You know, I feel like maybe my circuits are fried. I, I need to step back. I need to care for myself. I need, I need that advice. That's what, that's what I got to do. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's, it's an awesome practice. Right. <laughs> it is. I, I love the nap ministry on Instagram. She's like, you know, preaching rest. And I, I do love that. Um, which kind of maybe wants, you know, is a good uh, segue to pivot to, to sort of um, what you mentioned earlier, and I, I alluded to um, around whiteness. How do you use your tantric dharma practice and teachings to kind of interrupt whiteness? And maybe the prior question is, how do you understand whiteness as a system of, I don't even want to just say like oppression, but like contrary to the possibility of liberation for anyone, for anyone? Sure, sure. So, um this is a great question. I was, I was talking to somebody about this um, earlier in the week. For me, whiteness shows up in, in, in a number of ways, but one of, one of the most kind of profound ways is the way that we become involved in a discursive assessment of value around everything around us. So like thinking to colonialism, right? Like, you know, early colonists, and I mean, contemporary colonists now these days too, will assess everything that they experience spatially and relationally in terms of value and and then assess order and meaning and significance 
based on the order of value. Right? Those things which are valuable to me, I will try and um, develop relationship to or take, claim, uh, steal. Um, and so the way we do these things in relationship is um, stealing people's power and stealing people's um, efficacy, um, stealing credit. Um, and basically, you know, this practice of bifurcating experience. So we were talking before about this kind of, you know, resting into unity. Resting into unity right, requires us to be able to be open, accessible, compassionate, uh, empathetic, able to um, experience love. And for me, you know, the experience of whiteness is kind of very um, <laughs> anxiety-based, right? It's, it's rooted in um, making sure I get what I need, my community gets what I need. It has a lot to do with entitlement. But most of it, I kind of experience as an externalization of these drives around the capitalist type of, you know, ordering principle that really changes the way we relate to the space around us and, of course, other people. Mm-hmm. Hopefully that's something vague. Um, how does it show up? It shows up um, in terms of want, you know, wanting things, craving. Um, and then, of course, you know, pushing away that which has no value, no meaning, you know, that which I don't understand, that which seems foreign. Um, so there's this big kind of like, you know, level of, and, you know, whiteness is not just something that only white people, you know. Right. Uh, cultivate right it can be cultivated by anybody and i think much like capitalism these things have a way of creeping into our psyche um just by the sheer prevalence uh you know of these things in our our culture um so that it's hard to remove a capitalist value system from practice right always needing to go deeper always needing to produce um you know, deeper and deeper states of consciousness. Well, it's craving for extraction or for, you know, it's it's another form of greed in that way. Yeah. And even, you know, it, it uh, for me at least, in my own kind of like thought experiments with this, um, it, it, it makes me wonder if even the idea of evolution, you know, like spiritual evolution, for example, falls within that rubric as well. Like, w- would a, um, I mean, because especially from the, like the tantric ethos, we're already perfected as it is, mm-hmm. right? And so the, the work really is about resting back into that. Yeah, that's, yeah. Lama Suryadas talks a lot about that and the Dotan practices of just being, you know, just, just resting, which is a tantric um, lineage, you know, exactly. as, I, as I understand it. And, and, and that, you know, it's basically like, this is it, you know? And, 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 and so being the seeker, you know, is a way of kind of, you know, the longing and, and pursuing the longing and the quest for the longing you're saying, I'm hearing you say, at least I think I'm hearing you say, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is, is also potentially you've, you've wondered about a form of, of craving. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's, it, it, yeah. I mean, you know, the, I think, you know, the way this is, it, this gets very subtle, like, the way we even think of the spiritual path is so heavily influenced by that, right? This 
this idea that I start here and then I end up over here, up, you know, higher, or that um, even with respect to awakening, like what, what is awakening really? Like, you know, is it this thing of excessive purification? Of well, let me just pause for one second because I want all the listeners and watchers, uh, viewers, to know that you spent, what, seven years, 10 years, five years? Where? In... Yeah, in retreat in, in monastery. You know, in, in uh, I mean, you know, between uh, going back and forth between here and Asia uh, since uh, 1995. Yeah, so I guess what I'm trying to say is you're saying this from a place of deep practice as a lineage holder, not as somebody who like meditates maybe when you feel like it. So anyway, go on. <laughs> I, yeah, absolutely. You're, uh, and, and it's, a, it's an excellent point. And I, 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 I will challenge even the person who's just coming to meditation to crack it open, you know, like to crack open the experience and really look at, um, you know, how it is and why it is that we have the assumptions that we have. It's not that, um, I think the thing is, is that it, it uh, to some extent, it doesn't really have so much to do with the amount of time we put into it. It has to do with how comfortable we can be with being really honest with who we are. Yeah. And so I've met people who have been like meditating for like 30 years prior to my beginning to meditate. And some folks are really stuck in this like, you know, idea of progress kind of, kind of thing. And then there are people who come, you know, like Zen mind, beginner's mind, like just really freshly, I haven't necessarily been stained by these ideas of, you know, log, the long, hard slog of you know, Buddhist practice. Right. And they can see things very freshly. And, and, and that's a really, you know, good thing that happens. Right, right. Yeah, I love, I love that. I, I think I would put myself more in the latter category, that whole idea of, um, you know, trying to attain certain jhana states never really made sense to me, just in much the same way I never really was that interested in practicing my arpeggios. And yet, um, on the piano, but, but, but there is something about, um, a different kind of discipline that one can have an intention for and practice on a regular basis that I found I am more attuned to and with in my own practice. So like in the bug, the, you know, like killing bugs in the house, I don't kill bugs in the house the way that I used to. I don't, you know, and, and that's not, this is a weird example, but it's, I think about that. What does it mean, all the being seen and unseen? You know, there was this little, like, I just felt an itch on my, on my arm and I went out and it you couldn't even really see it, but it was clearly some kind of a little caterpillar. And it just, I'm like, oh yeah, that's what that means. And then all the ones, and I could see that, but it was super tiny. And, and then all of the other beings and, and, I guess what I'm getting at is, is there's a certain level of awareness around me being with my day-to-day moment-to-moment experience that I have that is part of my practice that isn't just about sitting long retreats, which I've done, but isn't, it's not just about that. But those have been immensely valuable for other things, like knowing that I can tolerate um, pain in my body when I sit for 14 hours a day and still survive and not feel like I'm going to die just because <laughs> I'm, you know, in this position. And that can, that can be enlivening. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I mean, actually to the point you're bringing up, like, the, you know, there's a long thread of um, practice style um, 
around a, uh, a meditation called Mahamudra, which is very similar to Dzogchen, uh, in, in which one, you, you'll often find people advising, and these texts kind of go back about 900 years, uh, advising people to sit for short periods, like 12 minutes. And, and where it's really about like breaking up the habit rather than like one long grueling session where, you know, your mind <laughs> goes numb, you know, you, you, you know, find yourself suffering. Um, sometimes there's more power in really breaking up the, the kind of our relationship to habit mind in these shorter sessions of five minutes. Right. Or I, I, I once knew somebody who set a timer on their, their phone just to, to like ding every hour and every, no matter where they were, work, subway, walking around, when that ding would go on, they would just check in. Yeah. And like, you know, where am I in relationship to, especially like, you know, this idea of like, you know, whiteness being externalized projection of, um, evaluation. Of yeah. Break it, break it, break it, yeah. break it. It's that, that it's the act of breaking. That that you know uh, unexamined habitual pattern. That's the most important thing. The long sustaining stuff, and you know that that that's useful. But it's sometimes more useful once you've kind of broken up the hard, you know, crusty surface of our habits. Yeah, yeah. It's you know the disruption, as they would say, in you know um, the disruptors. The, the um, yeah, I love that. So t- let's talk a little bit about the work you're doing maybe now with um, some of the folks at Rikers Island, because that's really challenging. And also a little bit more about um, what's in the book for people who might be interested in reading it, other practices. How do you integrate applying these tantric pieces to um, essentially social justice and equity work in the real world? Yeah. So, um, you know, with my work at Rikers, um, I think you could best sum it up um, as trying to be a Buddhist presence within this system of intense suffering. And, uh, and so it's really this practice of showing up. It's a practice of trying to demonstrate um, or, you know, disrupt the space through demonstrating compassion, empathy, um, deep listening, uh, awareness practice, and, and modeling something different. You know? And so... That also that might not actually sound like a lot, but when when you, you know, begin working for a paramilitary organization, um, you know you find that, that thinking is very different. Uh, relationship to space, relationship to time, relationship to identity is very different. Um, you know, this is a way of my being able to intersect with not only the criminal justice system, but but you know, system of mass incarceration and model something different. And luckily, I think we could say, to, to kind of plant some seeds of change, you know, in, in the spheres in which um, I work. Um, you know, modern tantric Buddhism is a, a kind of in-depth exploration of, it's a couple of things. I mean, there, there's a very thin thread of kind of memoir in it, you know, sharing some of the experiences with my teachers. Um, they're there are elements of looking at what a Vajrayana-based chaplaincy ministry could look like. And so that means, you know, using uh, Tantra Buddhist practices as a way of, especially ones focusing on presence, so direct presence and a willingness to kind of sit 
in the midst of the fire of difficult emotion, of violence, fear, of pain, of loss, sickness. Um, all of these things are very relevant too. I mean, uh, you know, with respect to COVID, um, the book came out, I guess, maybe six months before, you know, COVID hit. And, um, you know, the, the really fascinating thing about COVID was that there are a lot of people who maybe previously didn't necessarily have a huge relationship to illness. Then all of a sudden either they became ill or their friends, family, you know, loved ones came ill. Um, watching the entire world almost stop, you know, last year in particular. Uh, and, and, and it's still, I mean, as you said in the beginning, like it's, this is still in process. Um, huge amounts of death. Um, actually, I think we, we were on a, on a, a you know, panel together um, around um, COVID deaths and-, and um, Oh, that's right. That's right. We were that, um, yeah, for the paper, for the New York, yeah, the city yeah. or the, yeah. Yeah. And so one of, you know, one of my, one of the things I do and have been doing since COVID started is blessing the bodies that end up at Hart Island in the city's Potter's Field. Right. COVID deaths, and it's been about 2,700 that I've done since um, uh, the end of April 2020. Wow, that's really sacred work. Yeah, it's, it's. I mean, yeah, very, very sacred, very kind of close to my heart. Um, and just showing up for that much death is, you know, that's kind of, you know, endemic in, in tantric practice, helping to you know, guide these beings, console, console consciousness that's, you know, perhaps disembodied, um, to let, let, you know, let these beings that, that have died know that they're loved, they're seen, their stories, you know, that they're being witnessed at the very mm. least. Um, but then, of course, by something much larger you know, than all of us. That makes me cry. Makes me cry. Consoling consciousness disembodied to know that they're loved. I love that. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, I think one of the reasons why it's really important to me too is, is again, like kind of breaking out of our habit reaction. And, and you, you said it, um, you know, earlier that it's this interbeing, right? This, this interdependence that, that when one of us dies or when all of us die, there's still a part of us, a part of our consciousness that is still, you know, interacting to some extent for a certain period of time. And in a, at a time, especially for, for people in New York City, you know, April 2020, where the, it just, it felt like we might as well be, have been living in the time of Black Death. Right? Yeah. That, I mean, I, I, you know, we live in Bay Ridge and, you know, that's a pretty, like, an easy place but I remember uh, you know sitting one evening on the couch with my wife and you could hear people screaming outside because they were hearing news about loved ones who had died and you know just that that uh, you know for somebody who grew up in the city like I love the city and it's an intense place and to see it affected that profoundly and and still for us to be on this cusp of who knows what with respect to the Delta variant. And then, you know, um, the power of that is it brings us back to the simplicity of our, 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 our mortality. Simplicity, right. How fragile everything is. 
how complex we've made everything in our minds, but how this is really about um, waking up every day and doing the work we do, showing up for others, showing up for ourselves, going mm-hmm. to sleep and hopefully doing it again. Yeah, in that way that each day is truly a gift and an opportunity, each breath for that matter. Um, and, um, and I think that's, what's so sad is that, you know, back to sort of what we started with around the whiteness thing, it robs one, I think often of purpose in the, in the, in the, with the false promise, if you will, of like, like you say, if I evaluate properly, then I will, as the great Dr. Carol, Carol Gilligan says about patriarchy, I will have one step higher up on the, on the, on the hierarchical ladder of, um, what's better. And what's so interesting to me about Buddhism is people kind of get this wrong when they, uh, you know, and, and it's easy to get it wrong that they say it's good or bad. It's never been good or bad. It's skillful or unskillful. It's helpful or unhelpful. And, and, and I don't, in the sense of like, ah, that, that thing of like that trying to achieve something going up on that ladder, it's that it's never, you know, I don't, I don't see that it's ever particularly enough because it's an infinite ladder. I mean, now we're going to Mars, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, like white billionaires. Going to, yeah, that's, I mean, that's, you're good for us to steal from, you know, claim. Yeah, no, I, I agree a hundred percent. You know, it's, it's just, it's vital work. I mean, this is where also uh, like meditation practice, dharma practice, et cetera, uh, has this kind of terra, terraforming kind of quality where, where we, as we break up, you know, or disrupt or kill or smash these habits, right? This, this habitual lens through which we look at things, that becomes palpable palpable experience for other people. And so we've all been, you know, we've all met somebody or a couple of people or a handful of people in our lives or just being near them feels incredible, right? Mm-hmm. You know, sitting in relationship, watching them smile, watching them be, watching them talk, listening to them, taking in their presence is transformative. And, and I think, you know, in this way, um, we tend to forget how impactful we are in our practice. And so even if you're, you feel like you're just starting off, uh, you know, in a practice that that very initial work is so laden with potential benefit that, that it's it's precious. It's it's one of the most sacred things you know we can imagine. And that in this in the in these times, these times of mass illness, political instability, environmental crisis, and and and, and everything else we need more people who can demonstrate that kind of empathic, passionate receptivity, right? Allowing, it's, it's more than even just, you know, skillful or unskillful, it's that everything's okay. Mm. You know, John, and, and you find this also, you know, both in the Zinchen and Mahometric traditions, where everything is fundamentally pure. Everything is, is you know, fundamentally liberated. And it doesn't mean, you know, hey, just, you know, uh, let yourself be abused or, or, you know, let systems be destroyed, the environment be destroyed. But what it does mean is that, you know, even in our worst pain, there's purity. You know, 
they're even in our our moments of great personal despair, their spaciousness. Yeah, because it's actually what you're feeling in that moment. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's the thing for me is we don't like, you know, just because you don't like it, meaning like I like, you know, that idea of like preferences, right? Am I moving towards something away from something or I don't care about something? That idea of just because you don't like despair or it feels uncomfortable doesn't mean it isn't 100% what is there, you know, and for some reason what maybe needs to be there and that we can be with that and that the more that we can learn to be with whatever it is, just like we can learn to be with joy. I know people who push away joy. Yes. You know, it's, it's that's joy is uncomfortable for a lot of people. Contentment and happiness is uncomfortable for a lot of people, ironically, um, because they don't feel as though they're allowed to have it or whatever. Um, or it means that there'll be less joy for others if they have it. Or, you know, there's a narrative that they may have that's unique to them that may go along with that. And so actually being able to be with what we are with and knowing that it's not going to last forever, I think can be a great thing. And that is where I think the sitting practice can be helpful. Kind of see it come and go. Um, Well, we have a couple, like mm, one or two more minutes to maybe just kind of wrap up. Are there any more um, pearls of wisdom or nuggets that you'd like to share with listeners or viewers before we go? Um, Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe, um, you know, what I, what there's in the, in the third portion of, Modern tantric Buddhism, it's divided into body, speech, and mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this exploration around um, learning to look at everything as the teacher? So, including our meditation experiences as we sit, in, you know, especially when we're just starting off in, in, in meditation practice, it's very easy for us to experience our mind as chaotic and um, uncomfortable with thought activity is fast. And the more that we're able to open up to every single experience, it's both of us, you know, together in relationship here, or the people who are listening to this, you know, at a later date, or you're meeting at six o'clock afterwards, absolutely every moment, every single thing we see, we smell, we taste, we touch, is practice, is a place of practice. All of those things then also subsequently become our teachers, right? So, like, dislike, our reactivity, our need for sleep, our, you know, whatever it is that we're, we're feeling we're needing, the way we might feel challenged, and then the way we may feel incredibly resourced are all our teachers. And there's a lot of wisdom in this and a lot of applicability, you know, for myself as a chaplain or a Dharma teacher, but then I'm a parent and I'm a, a partner to somebody. I'm a son, I'm a grandchild, you know, we all have these kind of intersecting um, identities and learning to understand that we can actually kind of open up to absolutely everything that's available to us. And in the beginning, it might not feel easy to do that, but we can. And I feel like I've been able to do this in my practice, open it up more and more and more and everything becomes uh, to quote a song from you know, a, a Tibetan song that's translated in here, everything becomes a treasury of bliss. Mm. Everything becomes a place for us to be, even death, death, illness, violence, loss, and become a treasury of bliss because it's it's experience that we're able to have 
that when we can put down this labeling and judgment and kind of the neurosis of whiteness, we can actually experience things freely in a, in a more unified way. It, it's beautiful. Yeah. Lama Justin, I love what you're sharing with us today. The book is Modern Tantric Buddhism, Embodiment and Authenticity in Dharma Practice. And um, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us on Rerooted today. It's really a pleasure. We could go on and on. And yet um, in our delineated world, um, I, I, I have other things, you know, clients and things like that. And I'm sure you have other things that you would need to do too. But I've treasured our time together and it will live on through the interwebs or however it is. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much, Francesca, for having me on. And please take good care of yourself. I, I love what you do. Likewise. Thank you so much. Take care. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.